You're listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps aspiring professionals in film get where they're going faster by dissecting the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives in the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley, and with me today is my good friend and Make It podcast co-host, Nicholas Bugs. Hello, hello, Chris here with another episode of the Make It Podcast, and this is an Indie Talk week, so that means I have my co-founder and good friend with me, Nicholas Bugs. Nick, say hello. What's up, folks? Uh, it's good to be here, and as we were just mentioning, Chris, you know, this little pre-chat that we have before we get into some of these great podcast episodes uh, today, man, it, it, it drained my glass. <laughs> it did, but, but but this is the week to do it, right? Uh, this is Thanksgiving week and COVID coming up. Yeah, uh, what better way to start this week than to empty your glass before we even talk? So we might hear a slightly tipsy Nick. Is that is that what we're is that what you're getting at? Hey, man, if I slur, you know, then you know where it's coming from. One of the bigger one of the bigger misses of this year is loading up on a lot of alcohol, anticipating tons of gatherings and parties and holiday stuff. And there's no one here to drink this shit. <laughs> it's just there like you yeah. like yeah. like you're emptying your glass, and I'm like, I wish you'd be over here, and I'd pour you another one because uh, I can't drink all this stuff, folks. Yeah. Like there's yeah. too mu- there's too much stuff here and um you know I, here's the good news liquor doesn't expire or do, wait <laughs> i don't think <laughs> i don't nah. think liquor expires man no nah, it'll that stuff will sit around forever you right. know it's funny you know i had left my, my dad had brought some i think it was some heinekens over to the house at one point and you know like my beer fridge was full and i'd actually left them like outside right mm-hmm. like they were sitting on the on, you know outside of the house and you know so yeah, I think it was like a couple of weeks later, you know, it was fall, winter time or whatever. So it was like a couple of weeks later, like, oh man, I didn't bring those things in the house. My dad was like, so? <laughs> nothing, nothing wrong with those beers, man. Like, you go, go, go get me one, you know, outside, you know, I'll pop this thing in, you know, lo and behold, you know, you pop that sucker open and what does it do? Right? It's ready for you, you know? It's so yeah, it's... It's ready to go. It's, so it's, it's hard. Here, yep. here's to next Thanksgiving. Yeah, for sure, man. And uh big shout out. I just wanted to mention that it's a, like you said, it's COVID Thanksgiving. It's a, it's a difficult time uh, for many people right, right now. Right. Yeah. I hear you, but it's, I'll just say it's a difficult time for many people right now. You said um, like it's so, a joyous time. It's COVID Thanksgiving. Yeah, it is. No, I, I hear you. Right. But it's, it's a difficult time for many people. It's a challenge. You know, you may not be with your loved ones like you want to be yeah, I'm in uh, that this boat. holiday. I'm in that yeah. It's, it sucks. Like it's just all of it just flipping sucks. But, um, so we just want to, you know, let people know that we, we get it. We're like you said, you're in that boat, you know, we're doing COVID testing and all this nonsense that we got to do to make sure that, you know, some family members are, are feeling okay. But even through all the testing and all that stuff, you still have family members who are concerned for themselves or their loved ones as well. Uh, so we get it. So this is not a, a normal week, right? It's not a normal holiday. Um, we get it. And we, you know, we sympathize, we empathize, you know, with our audience and everything that you folks are going through. And we're hoping that, you know, with the folks that you are able to spend this holiday with, that you focus on that, right? You focus on the gratitude in those moments and you can focus on the fact that you, you do have someone that you're actually either thinking about during this holiday, that you're with during this holiday, and that you can find some level of, uh, of silver lining, in this because like I said, we know it's a challenge, but yeah, we hope for a a brighter tomorrow at the least. Well said that is absolutely the case. And I think I'll just, I think it's good to just leave it at that, but I just, I cannot resist adding one more thing, which is I think we all have to be easier on each other too. I do. Um, it, I heard this, great axiom I read this the other day, which is that social media brought us all together just to tear us all apart and are just to divide us. 
and I think that we have to chill out on the ad hominem attacks of each other and stop pointing fingers. No one wants to get sick. No one's out there being foolish in their own mind. And I think we need to be easier on one another this Thanksgiving and this holiday season. And I think we need to be easier on ourselves, give ourselves a break. Um, allow ignorance to be a factor. Allow uh, misunderstanding to be a factor versus malice. So I just yep. thought I would throw that in For there. Sure. Today, we have some fun topics to talk about. We're going to talk about... Uh, Sean Mendez of all Nick Sean Mendez. I know, right? We're going to talk about Sean <laughs> Mendez and Andrew Gertler's new connection um, uh, into the film world and why uh, it could be very interesting and, and a potential threat for indie filmmakers. We're going to talk about the phenomenon that is the Queen's Gambit. Now, anything that does what the Queen Ga Queen's Gambit has done uh, in the last month is worth talking about, worth taking note of. Uh, as an independent filmmaker, we're going to talk about how to double your money. If you're going out and getting a services deal with your independent film, meaning you're going to go out and basically have an aggregator, push your film out to all these digital streaming services, uh, no deal with Netflix, no big deal with Amazon or Hulu, for example, or Disney or Apple, but you're just going to be on streaming services. We're going to talk about how to double your money there. And we're going to end it with a little history lesson on a little known filmmaker named Oscar Mashad. So Nick, why don't we hop into Sean Mendez and Andrew Gertler? <laughs> Content yeah, man, well, for a cause, right? Yeah. And it just, it jumped out at me, you know, the idea that they're going to be launching a film and television production company. And so of course, you know, like you said, like Sean Mendez, like why are we talking about Sean Mendez? And, you know, I dig into this and it's like, wow, like, okay, they've already got, you know, one documentary that's, I believe, on Netflix already. And, you know, now they're creating this production company to create more. So I'm like, okay, well, what is this about? Like, why are, why are they doing this? Why do they feel, you know, so compelled to create this production company? And then when you look at it, it says it's focused on issues that impact or are impact important to today's youth. So there's a very specific market that they're looking to. And basically, basically what they're seeing is there's a gap in speaking on behalf of today's youth, mm. right? So this is something that I think, you know, we've been saying for forever and a day, and we continue to, when it comes uh, to a branding and marketing standpoint for independent filmmakers, like we 100% respect the idea of creating art, right? For the sake of art, like you, you have something that's on your chest that you want to say, uh, you have, you know, some artistic way that you want to put stuff onto the screen. We get that. And then we want people to continue to make that stuff. Um, but I think there's a challenge there for the independent filmmaker in that, you know, really for the indie filmmaker, if you want the more financial success, then basically you need a stage and a stage is really defined by your audience. And the audience is in indie space, a community that you're speaking for. Right. It's basically like, you know, why does anybody want to watch your content? Because in order to get to your content, they have to sift through all of the other content that's out there. So something has to compel them to watch what you're making. So if you start making stuff for communities, if you make stuff that speaks for someone else's voice, then there's a baked in built in audience right there who might be clamoring for your content because you're speaking for them. And when I see Sean Mendez, and company creating things they've got the right angle mm -hmm. they've got the right idea but it also it kind of makes me cringe a little bit like is this going to grow a trend where you have you know big money kind of infringing upon the world of the <laughs> independent filmmaker you know like if you have enough of these production companies coming out of big money and big studios and whatever then maybe the independent filmmaker is too late to the game that we've been talking about. Right. And right. that's, so, so I think it's a good thing, right. It kind of puts this type of content more in the market potentially, because they're going to have deals with Netflix and Amazon and whomever else. Uh, so that's great. But if all of that content is being usurped by the larger, more powerful 
I'll just say people, right? Because I don't know what's going to happen with the studio, with this production company, and how big it's going to get. But if it if it does catch on, then my concern is that if independent filmmakers at large don't start to lean in that direction, then is there a concern that can, it could push them out? Yeah, and it's something we've been talking about for years. It's really one of the best branding and marketing plays you can make as an independent filmmaker, which is to involve your community and find the stories that your community needs to be told. So is there someone that's maybe autistic that plays on the basketball team and this is their senior year and can you do a documentary on them? Or is there um, IP that is maybe associated with your town or state and then you can turn that IP, that book or whatever it may be into a movie and get the community behind it and tell these stories that need to be told that are better told by independent filmmakers with talent than told by studios who might sort of misdirect the movie or add more to it that needs to be added or glitz it up and make it, you know, one of these situations where we say, hey, don't ever let the facts get in the way of the truth kind of thing. Yeah. And now you have the digital world. And I really believe this is kind of where this came from. You have Sean Mendez and his manager basically saying, this is the new world of filmmaking where the playing field is even. We can start or more even than it's been. We already have a relationship with Netflix. We can start making things that matter and not worry so much about box office, right? Because now we look at the box office and we don't know when it's going to come back. That's even, right. a, even after the vaccine, 50, I think 52% of all respondents in a survey said they feel either somewhat unsafe or unsafe. If a va- and this was if a vaccine was available. So it's still 50-50. You see that uh, Universal Studios and other studios have come in and said, hey, we're not doing a contract for 75 to 90 day runs in theaters anymore. We're going to do a 17, and that is a real number, a 17-day run, and then we're going to go to digital, and that's the way it's going to be. So what happens when production companies and studios with seemingly endless resources and experience start to make the content that we have feasted on as independent creatives for so long? You know, that that is the question, Nick. Yeah. And I just, I think this is again, one of those things where we're just like, start making that content, you know, if you're not already, I mean, there's, it's not like no one in the independent filmmaking community is making this content. We, we, we know you are, and that's awesome. Uh, but if you're not right, if you have that, you know, that sci-fi idea that you've been working on, you know, for who knows how long, I mean, make it, you know, if, if it's the art that you want to make, um, but I'll just say that right now from a, you know, financial st- standpoint or return on your investment standpoint and audience engagement standpoint, you know, find the art, right. Find the balance in it, right. There, there are sci-fi communities, right. But just make sure that you're making it with that community in mind and you're speaking to that community about what you're making and that they're with you along the way and that well, you're not just making the content because it interests you. Well, two, well, two, well, well, you know, there is something to be said about making art that, you know, and that you are interested in. That'll probably be the most true, Yep. but I get what you're saying, but two, but two things quickly. One, yes, we're definitely not saying don't make your stuff. Exactly. Definitely go make it. What we're saying is, is that if these types of players get involved in these types of stories, a bar might get raised. That'll put even more scrutiny on your work and more pressure on your budget because you'll have to reach a bar that's higher than you're used to having to reach as an independent creative in a film that's about a social cause, let's say, for example, right? That's, that's what, you know, we're really getting at. And then the second thing is, is you mentioned sci-fi, but I think it's horror. I think the one that, and I know it could have been anything you just throwing out sci-fi, but it just, right, it, yeah. it, it, hit, it hit me that, the one that independent creatives really, to me, misunderstand the most in terms of their intelligence and their love for the genre is horror. Because you'll see 
indie creatives make a horror film and really spray and pray. <laughs> Sometimes I watch, it's like, I think you're spraying and praying. I think you're saying we're going to do this, this, and, and hope that everybody gets a thrill out of it every Halloween kind of thing. And this is like, Oh, this is smart business. This is smart business. We're going to make a horror. The whole, now this is me coming from the experience of us having invested and did advisory work on a horror film that has over a thousand reviews on IMDb, which is all I will end. That audience is so sharp, so judgmental, so on it. They know all the origin stories. They know all the tricks. They know what you're trying to do. They know when you cheated. They know when it's fake. They know that stuff. And I actually think that that and it just again, I know you you're just saying sci-fi because it was just what came to your mind, but it sparked my mind just to say, let's not underestimate underestimate our audiences, especially the ones we turn to in indie film regularly, like social yeah. causes, like documentaries, like horror. Yeah, and that's the idea, is that again, you know, there is a sci-fi community, there is a horror community, but just because you make a horror movie doesn't mean you're making it for that community. Cause like right. you mentioned, they're going to, they're going to, you know, smell bullshit, right? Like they're going to know they're like, no, I mean, come on, this isn't, you didn't make this for us, right? You didn't follow, you know, any of the rules that we expect around these types of things. You didn't, and you didn't take it to that next level that we're expecting and whatever. So that's the idea is that any, anything that you make. So if you decide to make a sci-fi, if you decide to make a horror, have the community in mind, engage the community as you go through it, learn about what they want, learn about what they like and they, what they don't like, learn about the stories that they might be, you know, kind of chomping at the bit to see next that haven't already been done. You know, yeah. that's it. Like when you're in there with the community that you're making the work for, then they're going to be there with you when it gets released. So I think that's the idea. And then again, back to the Sean Mendez thing, it's like, that's, what he's doing specifically, right? Identifying causes that are important to the youth of today. So I'm sure he's got an advisory board on what are the causes that interest youth today, right? What's important to them so that the content can be made for them. So that's you what, don't I, what say, I think. Nick, that you, you think he has people that are, are developing strategy around advice and branding and marketing for him? Hey, you know, <laughs> only the best do, right? <laughs> I, I think, yeah, I think a lot of times as indie creators, we're very cynical about anybody who wants to be part of the process that isn't one of the makers or, or creators on the ground. And, you know, you'll say to yourself as an indie creator, well, Steven Spielberg did need that and you would be wrong. Right. That's uh, exactly right. All the big studios do this in-house. They have people that do it and we don't ever hear about them or see them uh, because the production is so big, even down yeah. to the writing. You know, if you, if, if you talk to an indie writer and say, Hey, I think you should take on a co-writer. The first thing you're going to do is scream at you until your hair flies off and be so offended. Right. Which yeah. is understandable, but then they're eventually going to say, well, I don't think I do. So, and then you'll wait and see what happens. But in studio films, it happens all the time. And there's no choice. It's like, mm, we think the screen, screenplay is lacking a little bit. We're going to bring an XYZ ghostwriter. We're going to bring him in for a three-week contract and add it to the budget. Right. And, some and you never things, see that ghostwriter. He writes it or she writes it. It gets script yeah. gets better and then it gets shot. And there's exactly. no choice. And but the thing is, is that it, you know, those people who come in aren't there to rewrite the script. Right. They're usually brought in for a specific talent that they have. It's like the idea yeah. of having a script that you expect to be a comedy, but some of the jokes aren't necessarily hitting. Punch okay, it up. Let's yeah, exactly. Punch it up. So let's bring in the person that can punch it up. And that's the idea behind that. Right. Make it a little bit better. Let's bring these people along. So, yeah, I think so. Yeah, with Mendez, that's what they're going to be doing. You know, he has a foundation. Um, that he's going to be leveraging, you know, input from in order to make this content as well. And again, this just gets back to, you know, what we've been kind of saying to, to the independent filmmaker is that, you know, that's what you want to know. You want to be on the ground. You want people advising you, um, you know, about what's happening in those communities that you're speaking for. So if you have an idea for a piece of art that you want to create, uh, I think that honestly, 
independent filmmakers, you, you need to have advisors who are helping you through not the script, but just do you understand the concept of the themes that are in there strongly enough in order to speak uh, for someone else in this so that other people join you on this journey? Because again, that's what's going to happen with, you know, again, if this is su- successful with Sean Mendez, there will be advocacies, advocates, community organizations, individuals who are already signed up for these projects because they know what those products are about and it speaks for them. Like if that's the angle that he's going, it will be successful. And I think that that's the angle that independent filmmakers, you know, need to take. Let's talk about Netflix and let's talk about the interesting case of the Queen's Gambit. This is a seven part series that launched on Netflix. What date did it? I think it was October 23rd. October 23rd. And since then, it's got how many views? Well, it has been viewed in 62 million homes, right? Households. And that's seven episodes, right? Yeah. And since the 23rd of October. You put that in perspective, that's that's outrageous. That's 25% of all Americans. And I don't even know what Netflix U.S. market share is. I mean, that could be... 75% 75% of their total market share in the U.S. Yeah, it's, it's insane. And, you know, my question to you, Chris, was really like, like, why? Yeah. You know, like, like why, why this series? You know, because I think, you know, be, we looked at it. I mean, the, the book that this is based on isn't a recent thing. Nope. 1983, right? Right. right. So it's not particularly relevant to the large audience or the majority audience of Netflix watchers. Right. So it's not like they're like, Oh yeah, I've read that book. I'm going to watch this thing. Like what happened? Right. It's IP, but it's not exactly Marvel. Exactly. And this is record breaking, you know? So, so there's there's a couple of things and I know you've got some thoughts on, on this one, but you know, one of the things that kind of stood out to me is like, since there isn't that intellectual property, that IP behind it, that is relevant to today and nothing, you know, necessarily the actors that are in it or the producers or the directors or the production company necessarily screams at you immediately. Like that's not what drew people to it. It's almost crazy. Like we're in a, in a whole new world now, like (laughs) anything could hit, right? Like it doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter what it is. Like, it's just crazy. It's like, so what, like what, so it's kind of like reverse engineering all this stuff because I don't even know if Netflix knew that this was going to happen. Well, you know? they, like, they, they probably knew they had something. They didn't know they had something like this. And before we get into the why we should kind of break down what this movie is. I mean, or it's not a movie. It's a series that the right. series is this series doesn't have any A-list actors in it. Uh, I think for the average American, they would be challenged to name one person that was in it by name, even one. Um, It is not about football. It is not about football. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It is not about some great athlete that, uh, amazed us all like it wasn't like the last dance with Michael you know about Jordan that took the world by storm and obviously so right you could understand it oh this is Michael Jordan this is about a fictional chess player that took on the most difficult chess players in the world and beat them and as a female and then and simultaneously you know, she's battling these addiction demons and this and this sort of demon of her past from from being sort of abandoned in, in this fairly unique way. I won't give it away for those who haven't seen it by her mother. So and, and father. So why does that show resonate so much? And I think so, so I just wanted to set the table for everybody. Like, so here's what we have. We have a movie that's about arguably one of the most boring activities to most people. 
right? I happen to love chess. I was actually such a nerd Nick that I was in the chess club in high school. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. I, I was. And so I love chess. I knew I was going to watch this because, and I actually double checked it, Nick. I was watching the show and like stopping, like pausing every now and then to see, okay, are they bullshitting us? Or is this actually a real chess move that would create the reaction the opponent had? And they did not cheat. And I admire it so much for the fact that they took the time to research chess and actually set up the board and made those moves true to form. Like those were real moves that would really put an opponent in a serious bind. Like when they said checkmate, it was really checkmate. When they said three moves to check, it was really three moves to check. And I verified it. A lot of times in, in movies that have like a chess scene, you'll see these ultra close-ups, Nick. So you can't really tell where the piece moved. Right. Yeah. You just kind of have to take the writer's word for it that that was checkmate or whatever. Uh, but this was not like that. They want you to see the moves. They want you to see, uh, you know, knight to E3 and all this kind of stuff. Like they want you to understand the game as it goes along. It actually feels educational. And so going into the why of this, because it isn't on paper, like you said, Netflix isn't, couldn't have been sure they had anything here because this is about a book that no one's heard of that came out in 1983 that has no A-list stars in it or, or name recognition stars in it and to, to the general public, right. To movie right. people, yep. movie people are going to know them. Yep. And it's about chess. <laughs> right. And it's going to break all the viewing records Netflix has ever had. Exactly. Like it's, <laughs> like it's crazy. You know, so you have to ask the question why, right. It's, right. Especially like in, right. in what we do, right. It's like, okay, Indies, whew, you know, like how do we make sense of this for the content that you're trying to create? Because, you know, we just jumped off of a conversation about, you know, how we want independent film, you know, filmmakers to find a community. Yep. Right. And this one's an odd one, right? Is it the chess community that's, you know, maybe it's people like yourself and, you know, I kind of feel like the, the chess community is peppered throughout, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's people that play chess or enjoy it that you never know it because it's not something they talk about. Yep. Right. But it's been around for so long, right? It's been passed down so many times Then maybe that's the thing. Like you mentioned, they got very specific about these moves. Yeah. Right. So maybe it seems like the audience is somewhat niche and might be small, but it's probably a lot bigger, especially, you know, Netflix is, is international. So, you know, there might actually be an international influence here as well. But when I look at it, it's like, maybe that's what it is. Maybe there's enough people who are like, Oh snap, like they're talking about chess and not only they're talking about, but this story is phenomenal. Cinematography is great. I can verify that what they did on that table is legit. I'm all in. Yep. And when I go and I tell my friends, you got to watch this, I'm not going to tell them that it's a chess movie, just like I don't tell them that I play chess. Mm -hmm. Right? Because that's not what's going to get them interested. I'm going to tell them this is a phenomenal show. Yep. Right? So maybe that's what, that's what happened. Maybe there's enough chess players out there um, again, who live, it's the, the pocket chess life, right? It's just like the secret life they live. Um, but they tell people about it and then it's just word of mouth just kills it. I don't know. It's just, it's amazing. There's a thread going on through society right now that I think it touched on and I'm going to get to it. But I have a few theories here. Then I have like my ultimate thought on it. Okay. Yeah. Can I take you it. back to 2014, Nick? Let's do it. As Six long years as we can get ago. out of 2020, man, I'm good. <laughs> well said. <laughs> Let me take you to 2014 to a better time. That's right. So this was about six months before I would make my first Tesla purchase. So my first Tesla was a Model S. And I was so nervous about it because there had been no car company that had ever uh, not gone bankrupt in the United States, uh, since Ford basically. So the odds were highly stacked against Tesla and it's really easy to like have 2020 vision now on it. And you see what it is today and you're like, okay. But when I had been following it basically since 2009 ish, uh, 10 ish, 
and I'd been following Elon since PayPal days. So anyway, it was very, I was very interested. People know I was interested. Uh, People that know me know that I am a first adopter and that comes with major, major risk and a great way to blow a lot of money. And (laughs) there were people telling me this guy is not going to succeed. There is no way to do it. This is going to go to zero and you are going to lose all your money. Do not do this. And I was nervous. And so I took, I got in one of them and I drove it. And something happened. There's a moment and it's it's indescribable, but there's a moment that you can have. There's an experience that you can have where you can't put it into words, but you understand it. You understand that there is a fundamental shift happening. You understand that something different has happened that no logical person can say they don't like, or no logical person can get in this car. This was my experience. No logical person can get in this car and say it is not 10 times better than the experience of getting in any other car they've ever gotten in. That's how good it was. That's how different it was. That was the moment. And I was two feet in from there. Okay. And I remained sort of two feet in on them. Right. Right. Yep. You turn on the, the queen's gambit. And I mean this, you are five minutes into that thing and you have that moment. There's this moment where you're like, I'm in, they've got me. This is fundamentally better than anything I've seen on Netflix or recently, period. It is just, it is just, and there's a moment, 30 minutes in where you're like, oh no, here they go with the political stuff. Here they go trying to force a narrative down my throat. And then just when you think it's going to be too much, they don't do it. And they just tell the story and it's a great story. And it's in there. Now, here's the thread I was talking about. And tell me if you agree with this, too. I think musicians and content creators and social media have been pushing their primary audience out of, you know, sort of into a place of discomfort for that their audience's parents. Okay. So most social media audiences, 13 to 17, if you want to sell something right, maybe 13 to 25, that's, that's what everybody's making stuff for, musicians and everything else, right? Well, all the music that's, that's pop and mainstream is explicit. It's going to have that little e-buy, bro. Mm-hmm. So can you let your kids listen to what's popular? Can they listen to wet-ass pussy? No, they cannot. Right. Right. Even if you have a 15-year-old, do you want them to hear that? Do you want that message? Is that indoctrination? Right. I'm all for free speech. The problem is there's less and less alternatives that your kids are going to think are cool that aren't also explicit. Right? There is cursing in the Queen's Gambit. And I don't recommend it for kids that that haven't been exposed to curse words or kids that are, let's say, maybe 10 and under. But the upside of watching this child grow up to be a woman and do what she's doing in chess and take on an intellectual endeavor is inspiring. And I think the Queen's Gambit learned from the Queen of Katwa. I think it was the name of the movie, the Disney movie about chess as well, right? Was that mm-hmm. the name of it? I think Katwe. it was. Yep. Katwe. I think they learned from that. That was way more popular. That definitely outkicked its coverage. And they learned something. They said, okay, wait a second. There's an audience that we're not addressing right now because they're being pushed out of the mainstream market by explicit and ever more explicit and indoctrinating content. So can we touch on these different subjects that parents might tolerate a little bit of adult action from, but teaches your kid a good lesson instead of a political lesson or some other lesson or like kid doodle TV can, is there a place where my kids can go and watch content that's free from society? So I can just raise them free and then let them decide when they get older. And I think that also strikes a chord and and it sort of hit this like really cool audience balance where 
the 45-year-old mom's going to like it and the 25-year-old or 20-year-old daughter of that 45-year-old mom is also going to like it. Like there's so few things like that in the world, right? Because it's just edgy enough to get the attention of that 20-year-old and it's just educational enough and inspiring enough and frankly, American enough to really hit that 45-year-old woman, right? And everybody can like it. And so here's what I think happened. This is the big why. I think you're five minutes in, you have that experience. Wow, this is 10 times better than anything I've seen on every level. It's accessible to Netflix. Let me go tell somebody about this. Someone's always asking me, what am I watching? I'm never watching anything, but now I actually am. Let me tell them what I'm watching. You have to go see The Queen's Gambit. You have to go see The Queen's Gambit. I was recommended this show five times in seven days to watch it. So basically I was socially pushed into watching this. And the reason why that's significant, Nick, is because how do we normally watch Netflix shows? Well, I was going to say that Netflix pushes it to to you. Exactly. The algorithm (laughs) pushes a show to you based on your viewing habits. And that's how you watch stuff. But this is the one Netflix show in a long time, maybe since tiger, the tiger, uh, tiger King. King. Yeah. Where people were telling you to watch it by word of mouth. And if you don't know why that's so valuable in the world of marketing and branding, we call that the Holy grail. It's the Holy grail of branding and marketing. It's what you want your film to do. You want people to tell other people to watch it. What does that mean? Nick? It means that I'm going to take my personal brand. I'm going to take my personal credibility that I've built my entire life and I'm going to put it on the line by telling you to go watch something. I'm going to do something very scary, right? I'm going to reveal my taste level to you. Okay. My sister-in-law told me to go watch Stomp the Yard. That was her very favorite movie. (laughs) And I have not forgiven her since. (laughs) I will not take movie advice from her. Right, right. She revealed her taste level to me. It was very scary, I know. (laughs) But this is the risk you take when you do word of mouth. That's why word of mouth is the holy grail, Nick. It is. It is. And so I think you, you touched on a lot of great points in that. And of course, you know, now I have to go watch the entire thing myself, um, <laughs> you know, it just, but I think, again, you touched on a, a lot of great points. And, and one of the things that I want to, to emphasize in that, when you talk about this word of mouth is that the time it takes for that to spread is exponential in streaming world right? Mm-hmm. Especially in COVID world, but basically it got to 62 million households within a month, right? So again, the thing is, is that, you know, how many people were interested in it day one, right? So it might've started out as a Netflix algorithm situation, mm-hmm. right? Where they, it's yes. a new release, they put it out there and then people are enticed to click on it. That wasn't 62 million, right? So it's like they were enticed to click on it. And then, as you mentioned, the content, the nature of it, the themes that are in it, the quality of the work, like it was so phenomenal that all of a sudden it spread like wildfire. Yeah. And I think that's just something else to speak on. It's just that the time that it takes, right? I mean, it's, it's a month. You know, I mean, it's insane. And I'm sure that in that month, like everyone's watched like every episode of the series. Like, it's not even like, oh, I watched episode one and I thought it was phenomenal. No, in a month, they probably watched all of them, right? Like it's the veracity of it, right? Just to get in there and watch (laughs) all of this content because you're so enamored by it. It's amazing. And you mentioned something earlier about, you know, the deals that, uh, studios have or had uh with the theaters would you say 75 to 90 days mm-hmm. yep. that's three months right right and we're talking about within one month's time this thing was viewed in 62 million households right it's time wow. seven so that's an at an hour an episode so you're <laughs> right. talking about seven movies you know arguably four maybe four and a half movies worth I watched 
all seven hours in two days. So that's how engaged I was. Right. And, that's and what I'm, I'm, not the, I'm not the busiest guy <laughs> in the world, Nick. I'm not the hardest working guy in the world, Nick. But I got a pretty decent schedule. Yep. You and you made I mean? time for it. I did. You know, I it's, did. It's, it's, that's what I'm saying. Like it's, but it's, it's unprecedented, right? The times are unprecedented. The way that we're consuming content, the way that we're, you know, virally sending these messages to people. Like it's like, you have to watch this. And then people aren't saying, I'll get around to it. No, they're watching it. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that there's, and, and the question is, and this is, you know, we could kind of go with this topic forever, but it's like, there's so much content. We, we, we always talk about that. There's just an, a crazy amount of content, but the fact that someone says now, Hey, you need to watch this. It's like a, to me, to a degree, it's a big thank you. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it's like, there's so much content. I don't even know where to start. So I think that, and even Netflix, you know, they can put their top tens and top twenties, whatever there is out there. And you could use that model if you want to, but even in that, there's a lot of content. They still present to you a lot of content on the screen and you have to figure out how to use your investment, which is your time, right? Like, where do I want to invest the next hour and a half or two hours? And if a friend says to you, Hey, watch this. It's like, Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> you know, yep. like, dude, I appreciate you, man, because I didn't know what to pick. Now nothing's I know what more, to pick. Yes. Nothing's more disappointing when a friend asks you to watch something and then you don't like it and it, it offends you and it offends your friend. Like your friend almost can't believe it. What? You didn't like that. Right. Yeah. It's like when I told, uh, Jason, uh, who is our co-host on the, uh, film investment series, I told Jason to watch game of Thrones and he didn't like take to it right away. I'm like, Oh, go, just go to hell, dude. <laughs> like, what you, like, like, what are you talking about? You didn't like this, right? Like, I can't even accept that he wouldn't like it, right? And then, right, like, then I started, you? right? And then I started hearing a few more people that just didn't like the gore of it, like the okay. the violence level of it. Of it. Right. And then I was like, oh, yeah. that makes sense for Jason. Yeah, he he didn't like certain scenes, like in like a lot of Tarantino movies that go over the top, for example, yeah, exactly. with the violence yep. for the same reason. Like he just thinks it's unnecessary. I'm like, okay, that makes sense for you. I got it. I got it. So yeah, just, just an amazing thing. And you know, if you can get Holy grail, that's what you're looking for. And I think the only way you get it is if you make something that a person does have, has no shame recommending it. That's the secret. And it's a really hard thing to accomplish. It's maybe one of the most difficult things to accomplish. So really kudos to the team that made uh, the Queen's Gambit because that's hard. Because even I mentioned Tiger King, which did get a lot of word of mouth, right? But you know how people were asking you to watch it, right? They're like, oh, you got to see this crazy shit. Like it it, it started with a caveat, you know? Or not even that. It wasn't even that they recommended it. They would just say that people are talking about it. Yeah. Right? yeah. Like they mentioned like, Oh man, I've heard about this show. Right. Or like, man, it's crazy. Like so many people are talking about Tiger King. Honestly, yeah. I didn't, no one recommended it to me. Like no one was out. Like you're talking people, about like no one just yeah. put their brand on the line. Right. That you should watch it. <laughs> right. Because they know, like, look, here's the truth. It was always, a, it was always out of the side of their mouth. Like, That's right. you know, there's this yeah. crazy shit. I watched it. I'll admit it. I'll admit it. I watched it. Yeah, you should watch it too. You should watch it too. But I mean, I'll admit it. I watch, you know, see, it's kind of like one of those deals where they're like, they're recommending you to watch it because they don't want to be the only ones. Right. Yeah. And they don't want to have to put their brand on the line to say, oh, I'm the kind of person that likes this kind of entertainment. Yeah, and there's nothing I, I, wrong I, I, with I it. I saw it. It's My just friend that, told me to watch it. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's the same thing we talked about last week where the husbands are like, yeah, I watch the Kardashians when my wife is watching it. <laughs> I watch the Kardashians when my girlfriend's watching or whatever. I don't right. really keep up. I don't really keep up with it. What'd you say Scott Disick did? No, no, he didn't do that last week. Like, like, oh, how do you know the details? Oh, I was watching right. with my girl. I was watching with my girl. Yeah. You know. So, so we, we do this to protect our brand. And that's why that's Holy right. Grail is so important because when someone recommends it wholeheartedly, that means there's they know it can't miss. And that's right. if it misses for you, they know it's on you. That's right. Yep. And that's a yep. beautiful thing. I love it, man. Exactly. So let, let's yep. stay on the topic of like. Uh, elevating the game of independent filmmakers. We talked about Holy Grail. Let's talk about doubling your money. And this is something we've talked about in previous indie talks, but not in this through this lens. 
So we've talked about the fact and the fear that maybe we're not going to get epic films because of digital going further or going down the line in the future, because it just doesn't make sense to make a three hour movie and put it on digital the way that viewing habits work. And then I realized that something else is happening too in that. And look, I've made it a very clear to this audience and to you, Nick, that I think it's class action lawsuit worthy. What digital streaming pays for films. And I think it's an absolute crime that the gap between 20,000 people seeing your movie at fair market value in the theater and 20,000 people watching it on streaming is hundreds and thousands of dollars is an absolute shame. And, and like I said, it, it is a, it, it feels like a crime. That being it feels said, like it. Yeah. right. That being said, that's the game we're in. And there was another type of creator that was in this game before even maybe we were as indie film creatives and that's musicians. You know, when Steve Jobs created iTunes and created the iPod, he changed music forever. And there were people who stood up like Taylor Swift and Jay-Z and said, you know what, just take Dr. Dre. They said, Hey, take my music out of your catalog then. Like if I can't get fair market value for my music, just take my music out of your catalog and I'll sell it somewhere else. You know, bands like Radiohead say, hey, you know what? I'll just give my music for free and whatever you want to pay for, whatever you think it's worth, you can pay us for that on our website. And there are still musicians to this day that are uh, musicians to, the, to this day, rather, that follow some type of model that's outside of the streaming world. But what they realize is that this is the future. This is not going anywhere. And if you want to maintain your career, your relevance, your popularity, which therefore gives you your opportunities, you kind of have to have your music on these streaming services. So what we're starting to see is a slow creep where songs were four and a half minutes, then they were four minutes, Nick, then they were 345, then they're 330. Yep. Now the average song length is just over two minutes and 44 seconds. And you figure it out. You're like, oh, I get paid per stream. No one's buying albums anymore. So there's no reason to make November rain, right? right. <laughs> there's, no, there's no more eight minute, you know, uh, epics. Same thing happening in film, right? No reason to make it. I want this streamed as many times as possible. And I've found a way to double my money without any additional effort. Right. And so I think if, if you're the type of indie filmmaker, you're making your first film, maybe your second film, you know, you're going to go out and get a services deal, basically an aggregation deal that where your film will go out to all digital streamers that are AVOD or TVOD. You're not going to get that Netflix deal. Maybe, maybe the film's not good enough or doesn't have enough eyes on it to get a deal at, at Apple TV plus or Disney or, or Amazon or Hulu, et cetera. So all the big players, and you're going to get the services deal, make a movie that's just over an hour long. Feature film. You know, anything that's over 35 minutes, I think, Nick, and maybe I have that number wrong. I think anything over 35 or, or 40 is a feature film. So make a feature film that's an hour long, hour and five minutes, hour 15 minutes. Start writing your scripts that way. And you will literally double your money. Now, it's not going to be a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, caveat. But, it, but it will double but it will double yeah because you'll get double the views in that same you know twenty thousand. will will you know you'll the idea is that people will, can go through your content much faster nick that's the idea yeah and i think that you know for me and I've, you know I've, what we do all the time is always trying to find these new opportunities for independent creatives to leverage you know, existing systems when necessary and then escape from those systems when necessary as well. But, you know, this idea of, of making this type of content, you know, I think about, you know, the idea of just splitting the existing content. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you do have a two hour long film, you know, maybe there's an op opportunity to create a two part series, right. Or it's a sequel, right. You, so you create your first part and then you have it end. Same budget, right. Yeah. Same budget. You just, you know, it's creative editing in that, you know, in, in, in this standpoint. So now you're going to release two films. And the idea there is that, you know, maybe you're actually giving the audience, which again, I've mentioned this earlier about the investment, 
you know, so if I'm going through all this content that's on one of these platforms, there's so much out there. If I'm going to pick something that's new, right. That isn't like you said, IP, right. There's not some intellectual property behind it. It's not some brand that I know or some actor that I know or director producer. And I choose to click on something. I then have to choose what my investment in that film is. Right. I have to say that, you know, I look at it and I'm like, oh, it's two hours. So it's a two hour film from somebody I don't know. Like, am I willing to do that? Right. Versus if I saw it and I saw it was 45 minutes or an hour, I might be more inclined to give you the time. And if you made quality work, and when I say quality, it's basically, you know, if you made work that will attract a large enough audience and that word of mouth that you mentioned based on people watching it, then they'll watch the next thing. Right. And then as Chris is mentioning, you'll then get paid on both. Right. So instead of getting paid once on that great piece of work that they stuck around for, now you'll get paid on both things because you made a great piece of work that's now in two pieces. They watched the first one, you got paid. They watched the second one, you got paid. And it fits the current zeitgeist, which is, you know, it's like what Quibi was trying to get into. Right. You've got what, 10 minute you know, content, you've got smaller content in other places. There's this, they're trying to find the sweet spot. And I think that with things like, you know, like you mentioned Tiger King earlier, there's all these other docu-series, there's series in general that are like that 45 minute, maybe to an hour mark. And maybe that's what we're seeing is that it's it's not just about docu-series. It's not just about series. It's about how people are consuming content. Right. Right. So if you're continuing to make content that doesn't fit the model, then you're, you know, you're working in a place that was two years ago or five years ago or 10 years ago, but the current model is saying no 45 minutes. So I think it's a, it's a great idea, you know? So if you have an opportunity, you know, within your existing work, you know, maybe you don't write it for an hour, maybe you write it for two, use some creative editing and say, well, how can we end this? right? As one film and how do we begin it as a second? And then maybe you get, you know, more hits. Maybe you have people now invested in two films. Maybe they'll invest in your next one as well. Yeah. And beyond that, I think, or at least to amend to that, I would say, look at the business model. And this is, this is what we have to start doing. If you haven't been doing this already, look at the underlying business model and be, and be realistic about where your film is going to end up, right? So I know that, Nick, you've talked about this a lot. There's this dream that you're going to end up in a big theater, and then when you don't, you don't have a plan, and yep. then that becomes a problem. Well, now COVID's taken that away. <laughs> right. <laughs> COVID has Thanos snapped uh, yep. your dream. And so right. now you can be more realistic about where your movie's going to end up, And you can say, what's the underlying business model? What makes this model work for them? And what makes it work for me? And then try to make your content based on the model that you're researching because you think your film's going to end up there. Because these models exist across the board. You know, if you're making short form content and you think it's going to end up on YouTube, figure out how YouTube monetization works. And how can you meld your content to sort of fit that business model? If, if you're thinking it's going to end up on Netflix, don't worry about it because Netflix is going to license your movie. Right. Right. Or if you yep. think it's going to end up on um, Amazon, they're going to license your movie. You don't have to worry about the model as much, but you still need to understand it as much as possible. Understand what the licensing means, what the rights mean and how you get paid. So I'm not saying forget about it. Always know the business part of show business. Right. Yeah, but, but that's the key. But, but you, every that's it. Yeah, but but it's every digital side. right, every digital streamer, because I know you want to go on that. But every digital streamer has a different model. That's the thing I think that might be a little shrouded, which is AVOD and TVOD and SVOD all have different models. And so, yeah. if you think you're going to end up on TVOD mostly, understand what transactional video on demand really means and how that business works, Nick. Yeah. And how they're going to pay you in the end, you know? And I think, so here, here's the thing that, and and make your content to fit it. I should exactly. And yeah, yeah, because the, the key thing that you mentioned earlier about, you know, 
class action suit worthy, but it's not because filmmakers and content creators are, are giving into this, right? They're giving their content. This isn't a secret, right? The person on the other end isn't lying to you. They're not necessarily even hiding anything from you. They're telling you what you're going to get and you're giving them your content. But it's like, the whole idea is that you want to get fair market value for your work. Mm-hmm. But the business model isn't set up to give you fair market value for how you're creating your content. Right. So create a model, right? Like you like create your content in a way that it can get fair market value. So, you know, maybe it's that 32 minute long thing that you create and you create five of them, right? Mm -hmm. Each individual one becomes its own opportunity, its own product and its own opportunity for value versus if you had released it as one thing, right? It's only going to get paid on once, Mm -hmm. right? But like you said, you could double, you could triple, you could quadruple this thing if you broke it up into pieces. And again, if the content is good enough, then the person who watches the first piece is going to want to watch the second and the third and all the way through the seventh, like the queen's gambit, right? It's like, what is, is compelling me to want to watch this? And again, we're in that world where people want to continue to watch, right? If they're hooked on the first one, they'll watch all of them. Mm -hmm. So get paid on all of them. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? You know? So I think that's, Definitely a model that, you know, again, it's creative editing, right? You have to think about your content and, and where you could have these, you know, these cuts that occur. Uh, but I think that is definitely a model that, um, you know, indie filmmakers need to embrace in this new zeitgeist. 100%. And going into this holiday week, people are going to have a lot of downtime, time to be creative, time to think, time to be with family. And I wanted to leave this conversation with, a little note of motivation, hopefully, and uh, a little story uh, that's potentially a little well-known by, by the audience. And that is the story of filmmaker Oscar Michaud. And uh, if you want to Google that, it's M-I-C-H-E-A-U-X. And this is an African-American filmmaker and the first African-American filmmaker uh, in the U.S. or, or anywhere that I know of in the world. And he made his first film in, in 1919, I believe. And, um, he, he made it his own IP, Nick, uh, off a novel that he wrote called the homesteader. He was the very first person to, to make a feature film that had black people in front of the camera and behind the camera. Uh, and he, and, he did this all throughout his film career and because of Jim Crow America, Nick, and because of sort of the injustice of the time and inequality of the time, he would have to go with the, and back then you had real film, right? So it was in tens. He'd go with his films under his arms and go theater to theater, knocking on the theater doors, selling his movies based on the merit of the film alone. Right. Cause he wasn't going to get any credit based just on who he was in society. Uh, uh, knocking on each theater, getting them to sell the film, really sort of hustling, getting them to buy the film, that, uh, and really hustling his passion his whole life, his entire life. And when a theater did buy it because of segregation, the black people would come uh, to watch it and support it, and they'd have to sit in the balcony. And the white folks, they would sit on the floor seats, and they'd be completely segregated for the entire show. And these were called race movies at the time. And he had to deal with this his entire career, all the while becoming basically the godfather of black film. And here's one little other known thing about him. The, that, that gold statue that we all want, that is formed and developed and modeled after Oscar Michaud. So most people don't realize that um, there's a pretty good case to be made if if someone of color is saying hey how come we (laughs) we aren't being included in this award ceremony when we're doing pretty great work out here Uh, especially considering that statue is formed and developed and modeled after uh, a black man black filmmaker black writer that uh, 
uh, really was a pioneer for all feature filmmaking, especially filmmaking with sound, because a lot of film before Oscar didn't have sound. So 1919 feature film with sound, black people on camera and behind the camera. And the main point I want to make here is he hustled, even in big Hollywood, he hustled his films. He had the energy to get fair market value for his movies. And so I say to you as an independent creator, don't give up that fight. Don't give away your baby. You know, the thing you work so hard for, don't give it up to somebody else to go make you into somebody. You can, if, if Oscar can go theater to theater, door to door during Jim Crow America as a black man in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, you can definitely find a creative way to take your film and get fair market value for it, Nick. Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll give you my my French here. So the E-A-U-X in his name is uh, an, it's o an O sound. O sound, yeah. yeah. So it's Oscar Michaud. And uh, one of the things, you know, there was a... Um, That's my Southern accent document. I'm putting on it. There you go. There was a, a documentary on, on him, uh, The Czar of Black Hollywood. And uh, there's a section... But they talk about, you know, about the actor, um, Oscar Michaud, you know, so about the, um, this, this man behind the, the film. And one of the things it says is he is also a pioneer of independent cinema. Though the end products of his labors often were technically crude due to budgetary constraints. Right. Michaud, the filmmaker, is a symbol of the artist triumphing over long odds to bring his vision to the public at large while serving in the socially important role of critical spirit. Okay. So, you know, getting back to what you said, right. About continuing to, you know, I, I hate to use the word hustle in this case, right. But it's continue to create, continuing to push the content, continuing to leverage that medium to speak larger than himself. You know, I think that there was a lot in those films that he created that, um, you know, spoke to, you know, the effects of segregation, you know, on the black community. There was a lot. And I think he, in his, what, 22 silent movies and 15 talking pictures. I mean, it's a lot. You know, he was prolific at the time. Mm -hmm. But I think getting back to that, the fact that his, you know, though the end products of his labors often were technically crude due to budgetary constraints, right? This is the world of the truly independent filmmaker, right? I think that's it. I think, you know, the independent filmmaker that, you know, does not have that technically crude aspect is they, those are the folks that excel, you know, above and beyond, but on average, right on, if you're looking at the average independent filmmaker, they have budgetary constraints that limit some of their abilities in cinematography or, or sound, or even some of the casting that they can, uh, they can afford to, to onboard. Exactly. But with Michaud, it says again, while serving in the socially important role of critical spirit. So that gets back to the conversation we had earlier about who are you speaking for? Right. So you can create all of this content that by, you know, um, standard media, or I'll say, um, big media standards may be crude, but if you're doing so in a fashion that speaks for a community that has a larger voice that speaks for a cause that does something greater than yourself, then what you're speaking for will likely transcend your budgetary constraints. Yep. Right. And I think that's the key. That's why I think he is. I mean, it's, it's great that you, you brought up that topic because, that is a pioneer in independent film. And I think that's something that independent filmmakers need to maintain focus on. So yeah, it's, it's an, it's an awesome tale. Yep. And so it's this Thanksgiving lift up a glass and do a cheers for Oscar Michelle and uh, let his spirit live through you as an indie creator, Nick, what a fun conversation. This was wide ranging. Good times as always, my friend. Yeah, for sure, man. Um, I was with you all the way until the end when you said lift your glass because 
mine's empty and uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to go fill it just to make that toast to, uh, to Oscar. Um, but yeah, man, this is, this is awesome. I love doing this. Hopefully, you know, we've, we've brought some, some cool insights and ideas to the independent filmmaking community. And, you know, as always, I look forward to doing it again. 100%. And if you guys want to get involved, you can, you can find us on social media at underscore bonsai creative on Instagram and on Twitter. You can also find us on Facebook by just searching for Bonsai Creative and we'll come right up. If you have questions, concerns, comments, corrections we need to make, you can email us at contact at bonsai.film. That's B-O-N-S-A-I dot F-I-L-M. And for all things in the world of Bonsai Creative, you can always go to our website full of resources. It's at www.bonsai.film. So again, that's www.bonsai.film, B-O-N-S-A-I dot F-I-L-M. Tons of resources there uh, where you can learn more about Bonsai Creative and our journey in independent film. So with that, I hope everyone has a wonderful Thanksgiving. Nick, sit us off with the credo. For sure, man. Uh, Again, thanks so much for this convo. I appreciate it, man. It's always wonderful. Uh, Happy Thanksgiving to everyone out there. You know, be safe, be mindful, be grateful during these times for what you can be grateful for. Uh, And with that, please be better, be creative, and be engaged. And thank you for listening. Nick, talk to you soon. Yes, sir. All right, brother. Peace. All right, man. Later. Later. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Banzai Creative, and the show will pop right up. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on Book Us to schedule a free discovery meeting and needs assessment. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.